The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And I couldn't have a better guest with us today to help us find food truth than Anna LaPay. Anna LaPay is the author of many books. She's a prolific writer. She's an author and advocate for justice, environmental, social, and food justice. She has recently written a book called Diet for a Hot Planet, and you probably recognize her last name. She is indeed the daughter of Frances Moore LaPay, whose book Diet for a Small Planet really changed the lives of many of us. But Anna, I want to also mention your dad, because your dad was way ahead of his time, looking at the dangers of biotechnology. Is that correct? Yes. My father, Mark LePay, a huge influence on my life uh, and, and also a wonderful, wonderful father, uh, was a medical ethicist and epidemiologist. And he was way ahead of his time on many, many fronts. He was one of the first people to raise questions about plastic pipes and about Agent Orange and uh, silicone breast implants and toxic pesticides, as well as genetically modified foods. He wrote a book uh, called Against the Grains. That was really one of the first books to, to compile research on investigating the claims from the biotech industry about the benefits of these untested genetically modified crops. And he found in that research that the claims coming from the industry that genetically engineered crops would inevitably lead to higher yielding crops were were actually not true. And he raised a lot of questions in in that book, Against the Grain. And and his perspective to this work was always one of uh, the precautionary principle. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a principle that I also follow through my own work and, and my own relationship to the environment, ecosystems. And it's it's this pretty simple concept, which is that, you know, we should look before we leap, that we should proceed with caution, that we shouldn't wait until we have absolute scientific proof that, for instance, a chemical causes cancer for sure. But if we have some indication that it might, we should we should proceed with caution. And he felt the same way about genetically engineered foods, that this is an untested technology. And before we start planting the stuff commercially across our farmland and having these ingredients be ubiquitous in the American diet, we should know a lot more about them, about their effects on ecosystems and about their effect on human health. So how could you not be the one to write this book, right? (laughs) Yes, I went into the family business. Exactly. That's a great response. Well, I have to say that in the beginning of your book, you quote Susan Griffin, who's an environmental philosopher. And I won't read the whole paragraph, but the very last line really draws attention to the fact that we hold many futures in our hands. And you dedicate this book not only to your mother, but also to your new daughter. And I thought of her, Ida, when... I read this about how once we enter into motherhood, all of a sudden the world takes out a little bit of a different color in that we start thinking of the person that we love more than anything and her or his future and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren's futures. And yet how we eat every day, we're not making these connections between how we eat the foods we choose necessarily and how those actions not only affect us, but all of the futures that will come after us. Well, you're absolutely right. And I 
certainly felt as soon as I knew I was pregnant, I felt that shift in consciousness for me of, of really being able to conceptualize much longer term than I ever had because I started imagining, yes, what would this planet be like, not just when I'm older, but when my daughter is my age, so 30, 60, 90, 100, you know, 100 years from now, what what will this planet look like? And, and of course, for me, that really tied back to the questions I was asking about food because over the course of the past 10 years investigating where our food comes from and how it affects our bodies and the planet, it became really clear to me that food, farming, agriculture, you know, that the way we produce food, the choices that we've made as societies about how we're producing our food touches all aspects of our lives, you know, most obviously how it's impacting our bodies. But also, you know, agriculture is the largest single user of land on the planet. Agriculture is the single largest user of water on the planet. Uh, we know now that food, the food system from seed to plate to landfill is responsible indirectly and directly for about one-third of all global greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a big factor in the climate crisis. Um, so in all these ways, how we have chosen to organize our food system to nourish ourselves as a species is having this dramatic impact on our sustainability as a species. Well, Anna, if you could identify specific components of the food system that are most damaging to the climate, could you do that? In some ways, yes. <laughs> Although it's, you know, it's very, it is very complicated. And one of the challenges in writing my new book was trying to, to wade through the science and wade through the complexity to really share a view about food and climate that most people could grasp and digest and bite-size enough nuggets of information that people could really absorb it. And and I guess where I came to in the end was not so much that there is kind of one piece of the food chain, the way you asked the question, that we could point to, but to pull back and to essentially look at the direction we have moved our food system and to argue that that direction at, sort of at the root is is where the problem is coming from. And in that direction, we can see very clearly is that the choices that were made to to create a food system that was heavily industrialized. So much like we saw an industrial revolution in our factories and we saw a shift to a dependence on fossil fuels throughout our other sectors of the economy, we saw that same thing happen with our food. We saw an industrialization of our food chain so that now most of the food that you'll find on your plate has become entirely dependent on fossil fuels to get there. Mm-hmm. So we're using fossil fuels in the production now, uh, massive amounts of synthetic fertilizer, creating fertility synthetically through fossil fuel use, through natural gas, that historically throughout the ages, we human beings were able to create in an entirely sustainable way through using natural sources of fertility, whether that was animal manure or sort of green manure, it's called in the form of uh, legumes and and crops that are able to fix nitrogen, uh, or all the ways that we were able to build soil fertility without having to rely on fossil fuels. So sort of we have got to pull back and really look at how we have gone from a food system that is able to sustain itself, is independent from an addiction to oil, to one that starting from the very base, from that soil fertility, all the way to the energy it takes to process the food and package the food and bring the food to our plate is reliant on fossil fuels. I love your book, and I love the way you start out saying, okay, you can jump in anywhere. You have a little section that says, how do you read this book? And you can literally pick it up and, and go anywhere. And I just happened to open it to page, well, this is a pre, 
release copy, so the pages might be different, <laughs> but you've got a table, the climate crisis at the end of our fork, and you've got each of the stages of our food system broken down. So you've got it broken down into production, you've got it into processing, distribution, consumption, and waste. And within each of those categories, we can then go in and we can see where are the greenhouse gases being released and how. And I think that is very helpful from a consumer standpoint. Exactly. And what you can see, and that's page 11, for those of you who want to find it in the in the book, what, what I wanted to, to communicate in the book is that as much as we can, as you said, you know, look at all the stages of the food chain and see where greenhouse gases are being emitted and why and how and who's behind them. The food industry, much like the oil industry, is highly concentrated. So there are just a handful of companies that are really determining so much about our food, just in the same way there's a handful of energy companies that are determining so much about how we get energy. But what I really want to share with people, too, is that that in the process of figuring out the problem, that's a part of a significant part of figuring out the solution, right? If we don't know, if we're not able to identify what's getting us in trouble, of course, we're not going to be able to get ourselves out of trouble. And so what I hope the book does is get people to see that there are alternatives, that the food system doesn't need to be such a significant contributor to the climate crisis. And in fact, it can be really big part of the solution. I hope that the book really conveys that sense of kind of consumer and eater empowerment. And one of my friends described the book as a hope sandwich, where she's like, you know, you got your doom and gloom in there, but it's surrounded by some, you know, pretty good chunks of hope. So that, you know, I, I really feel like so much of what I hear about the climate crisis is so almost mind-numbingly depressing, what I wanted to convey when you talk about food is that there's a way to be part of the solution. I know what you mean. That's exactly right. And for as much gloom and doom as there is, we have people arguing that the industrial system is the only way to A, feed the world, and B, feed the world from an efficient, cost-effective standpoint. But what your book does is it's pushed the envelope to help us really think about the cost beyond the cash register. Yes, and I hope gets people the information arguments that they need to push back on essentially what I would argue is myth-making and scaremongering about how, as you said, how uh, we need this fossil fuel-based agriculture to feed the world. And what I try to He's a part in the book in the section on uh, these kind of myths that we have about the food system is to get people to know that there's actually really solid research out there that is showing that actually we can have really truly abundant food production without relying so heavily on fossil fuels. And in fact, I would argue the only way we are going to be able to feed ourselves in the future is if we shift and we shift now away from relying on fossil fuels. And then the final thing I really try to share with people is well, let's let's look really honestly at this argument about the the role that industrial ha- agriculture plays in feeding the world. Because if you really look at it honestly, you'll see that we are doing a very bad job at feeding the world right now today through this industrial system. It shuts out so many many people who are going hungry or who are malnourished but overweight. In other words, they may be getting more calories than their bodies need, but they're empty calories. They're calories that actually are are not contributing to health. Absolutely. You know, this summer I had an opportunity to drive from Missouri to Oregon, and we took the blue highways, and I saw this industrial food system firsthand, just the miles and miles of feedlots, 
And I thought to myself, oh my gosh. I remember Kathleen Merrigan, undersecretary at, at USDA, saying that it's a really big ship that we've got to turn around. And when I saw the size of the industrial system, I wondered how or what are the first steps we can take to start whittling away at it. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like how do you how do you turn the aircraft carrier? You know, it's it's really it certainly is a challenge. I guess one of the the, the first steps I would argue is partly in our minds. You know, that's really about this kind of consciousness shift to get people to see that this alternative is possible. And and then I'd also argue, and I think we're starting to see this across the country, is that part of the way that you start shifting this huge, huge system is you you start by you start sort of from two directions from from the ground up and the top down in the sense that you just get to work uh, and you get to work building what we would like to see be the alternative system you get to work rebuilding those regional food sheds that used to exist we get to work getting people back on the land we get to work by training young people in how to grow their own food we get to work by educating young people about the kind of onslaught of propaganda they get hit with every day from the fast food industry you know we get to work in those ways and then at the same time we do the work which a number of groups all across the country are engaged in of really trying to shift where our our national policy is, you know, where are where is the lion's share of taxpayer dollars going to, and are we subsidizing and incentivizing a resilient and healthy food system, or are we subsidizing and incentivizing one that's fossil fuel based? And and I think both of those things need to happen at once, uh, and I I think we're we're seeing both of those things happening. I think you're right, and you know, I really like the section of the book where you highlight what I like to call the corporate welfare of the, of the industrial. <laughs> food system, you know, where you talk about how many billions of dollars of our tax dollars are going to directly subsidize the kind of food system that's hurting our planet. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and there's, all, uh, there's a variety of ways that our tax dollars are being used in our name and not in our name. I mean, I was just looking today at uh, a couple new food-related front groups that have emerged. So front groups are these organizations which publicly state a, a certain perspective or agenda, but actually if you scratch beneath the surface, you realize that they're in the service to their sponsors or their funders, which have a very, very different agenda than what they're stating publicly. And so you've seen a lot of the growth of these front groups in the food industry and food and beverage industry. The one I was just looking at today is called Bottled Water Matters. I don't know if you've seen this one yet, but oh, Bottled no. Water Matters, it is the voice of the uh, bottled water consumer who is apparently voiceless in the marketplace. And so apparently speaking up for these consumers, well, of course, it's funded by the bottled water industry. But a lot of these front groups are 501c3 nonprofit organizations in the U.S. tax code. They're, they're tax exempt. In other words, the companies that are funding these front groups, which present themselves as if they're speaking up for the public good, but actually are really essentially a form of advertising or or strategic messaging for the food or beverage industry, that by donating to these organizations, they're getting tax write-offs. And essentially, that's our tax dollars, or that's you know taxes that should be going into the public system, going into essentially this, this, this sort of other sector that 
doesn't have any public accountability to it and, in fact, I would argue is really lying to the public about what it stands for and, and what change it's trying to make. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Anna LaPay, who is the author of Diet for a Hot Planet, and it is probably the most important book, or certainly one of the most important books of the decade um, as we face the climate crisis. And I have to ask you, um, and this is a great topic, and we could probably speak for another hour simply on those front groups that I find to be so particularly offensive, you know, the PR groups that try to convince us that they're looking out for our best interests when they're really looking to make more money for the industry. I want to get back on the topic of climate. And I have to want to ask you, do we all have to become vegetarians? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that that's not great. That's not the, exactly the, the question that I would ask in the sense that I think what we need to look at is what is it that is causing the biggest harm in the food system as it relates to the climate crisis? And certainly when we ask that question, what we come up against is the growing system of livestock, of meat and dairy production that is you know, often called factory farmed or or CAFOs, confined animal feeding operations. Essentially, this way of raising meat and dairy that is completely antithetical to the nature of, of animals, um, that's taking animals off of the land, uh, taking them away from their natural source of food, and instead raising them in confined feeding operations where the the feed, the food that they're eating, has to be grown. Often it's grown far away from those factories, and so you're talking about a, a sort of a layer of energy that gets wasted, a layer of land and all kinds of other resources that get wasted as you're providing the food for those animals. And then the other reason why this factory farming system is so bad for the climate is when you when you confine animals in such a way, you're also concentrating their waste. And concentrated waste is a major source of methane emissions, which, for those of you who don't know, methane is another major greenhouse gas that has significantly more global warming potential than carbon dioxide. And um, so you're, you're creating this waste problem, which has all kinds of public health consequences, as well as this climate consequence. Uh, you are squandering the abundant resource of the soy and the grain that's going to these animals that, that give back to us just a fraction of what they consume and feed. So I think that the real question is, well, you know, what is the, what is there a way to raise animals that doesn't have these environmental and public health consequences, not to mention animal welfare consequences? And what is the sort of level of consumption of meat and dairy that would be in harmony with nature? And when you start asking that question, I think that there certainly can be a case that can be made for certain regions of this country, for instance, and certainly certain regions of the world that are naturally very well suited for, say, pasture-raised livestock that might be areas that are hilly or rocky that, that are not well-suited to raising crops. And there also are places where farmers have, have really used animals and livestock and integrated them onto the farm in a very holistic way where the animals are actually playing a positive role in the carbon cycle and in, in the entire ecosystem. So I think that there's a role for livestock, but where we've taken livestock today across the planet with this high concentration factory farm livestock production is totally unsustainable, totally impractical, and it's also meant a level of consumption of meat and dairy 
that is completely off the charts in terms of what our bodies evolved to consume. I mean, human beings, many cultures historically ate very little if no meat and dairy, and we certainly did not evolve to eat meat and dairy at, at every single meal. We certainly didn't evolve to me- eat meat and dairy at the level that we here in the U.S. are consuming it. So to me, the question is, you know, what is the diet that is aligned most with our own nature and what is the food production system that is aligned most with the the planet's nature and i think asking those questions reveals that that certainly for people who choose to consume meat protein there's a role for those people there might be a role for meat and dairy in their diets but it's meat and dairy that's produced in a way that's radically different from the way the vast majority of meat and dairy is produced in the country today Absolutely. I think that's great advice, especially coming from a public health standpoint. You know, it's all connected. It all makes sense. You know, you've got a section of the book that I think is absolutely very hope-giving. It gives us concrete action steps that we can take. It's called Eat the Sky, Seven Principles of a Climate-Friendly Diet. And there's one principle in particular that I hope you can expand upon because there's a little bit of a conflict from what I hear in the media from some of those great PR groups, I'm sure. And the tip is avoid genetically modified foods. And yet the message that I see in the airport on the big billboards is, oh, my gosh, we're going to have all of these people to feed. We've got climate change. We're going to have drought. How can we feed people under these situations? Well, the answer is genetically modified food. And yet you say no. Mm-hmm. Why is yeah, that? You know, I ended up writing a lot in the book about genetically modified food and when it sort of surprised me. And the reason why I did is because, you know, you're right. As I was writing the book, that was the messaging that I was hearing. And I went to a, a climate change exhibit at the American Museum of Natural History. And the only thing that the exhibit said about food and agriculture was singing the praises of genetically modified foods to deal with drought and deal with floods. And so I dug into it. And what I what I discovered is, first of all, that we are nowhere near having genetically modified crops that can be drought resilient or flood resistant. And it actually, when I talked to the, the, the experts, the scientists who've been looking at this, what they told me again and again and again is that the chances of actually having genetically engineered crops that have those character traits is slim slim to nothing that that basically they're you're talking about complex traits that are all about how um, the multitude of factors within the plant are functioning together, and it's not something you can engineer a gene to, to achieve. It's, it's more complicated than that. But even more profound than that, what they share with me is that what we really need to be developing in order to have a food system that can handle what we know is going to happen, more extreme droughts, more extreme floods, what we really need to be developing is a biodiverse food system. And it, a food system where you are promoting a multitude of crops that are designed to to function well in certain regions. It's about really bringing back many of our traditional crops that were that evolved over millennia to 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 handle specific ecosystems, specific climates, specific places around the planet. And that if you look at genetically modified foods, what you see is the opposite of that. You see the the absolute destruction of biodiversity in the creation of these crops. So to me, the the story of the the GMOs uh, is a story mainly of messaging from the industry. It's not coming from the scientific community. Your father would be really proud of you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) 
You know, Anna, we only have a couple more minutes, and I'm going to ask you a question that you, I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but, you know, your mother wrote Diet for a Small Planet. You've written Diet for a Hot Planet. What do you think the title of the book is going to be that Ida writes? (laughs) You mean after she writes the tell-all memoir about how I made her reuse all of her Ziploc bags and and packed her funny lunches? uh, what is the book she's going to write? Uh, well, let's, you know, I'd love to dream that 30 years from now or 40 years from now, she writes Diet for a Healed Planet. Oh, that's that wonderful. Yes, I love that. Anna, and I have to tell you, I just love you. And it is oh, such so an sweet. honor. <laughs> it, it was an honor to be a, a Food and Society Policy Fellow with you. Of course, you were the rock star in our class. Oh, you are you are being silly. Well, I would put you in that category, Melinda. Well, Anna, I have to say, this is a very important book. And I, I hope that all of our listeners, if you just get one book on your holiday wish list, it must be Diet for a Hot Planet. It is a non-judgmental, hopeful, fabulous guide for all of us sharing a very small planet Earth. Anna, do you have anything that you want to say in closing? Just, you know, thank you for doing this, Melinda. I think that there's so many parallels between what's happened to our media and what's happened to our food. And we need a sort of biodiverse media as much as we need a biodiverse food system. Absolutely. We've been speaking with Anna LePay, who is the author of Diet for a Hot Planet. She is a prolific author and a fantastic advocate for justice. And I just want to thank our listeners. I want to thank Anna, and I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you for your work, Anna. Thank you.